Now, I'm going to read to you the whole section that we're going to be studying for the next two weeks. We'll only get through part of it tonight. We'll finish it next Wednesday. Romans chapter 8, though, verses 18 through 30, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now likewise... The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, I, I, you say, wait a minute, Jim, mine doesn't say Holy Spirit. You see the capital S? Uh, the, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is going to be fun. But you got to probably need to get yourself a way to take notes because I'm going to take you tonight in an interesting direction in this very, very familiar passage of Scripture. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be breaking this down. Here Paul moves on to more about our coming reward and the third part of our salvation. If you remember, as we've been seeing, when the Bible talks about our salvation, the Bible sees all of it. And that includes justification, the moment in which we were declared righteous by God through our faith in Jesus Christ, then the sanctification process, and then thirdly, our glorification. Your salvation will be complete when we get our new bodies and we go to be with the Lord. So listen to this again. Are you saved? Are you being saved? Or will you be saved? Yes, and that's why if you look at the scriptures, the Bible talks of us being saved. But we're being saved so we've been saved and we're being saved and Jesus will bring salvation with him when he comes, the Bible says. And that's what we're looking at now, the glorification part. And would we not all say, I'm ready? 
by the way, if you aren't saying, man, I'm ready, something's wrong. Because like we even read here, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we're going to talk about that tonight. The Bible actually says that for those of us who are in Christ, who are actually living as we ought, we should be wanting to be with Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean we're suicidal or anything like that, but at the same time, we should be watching for his return, living for his return, excited about his return, wanting that, yet at the same time saying, what would you have me do until then? But I'm still looking for it, all right? And that's where we're going to go tonight. But in order to better unpack these verses, I want to look at this section tonight from a different way. I want us to look at verses 18 and following through the context of Paul saying, I know something that you don't know. And then him saying that creation knows something that we don't know. And then the Holy Spirit knows something that we don't know. All right. You see that we're going to see that Paul says in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that be revealed to us. Now, before we get to how he could say this, let's keep in mind who's writing this. This is not being written by someone who had an easy life. So that he could flippantly say, oh, the sufferings of this life, you know, there's nothing to be compared to the glory to be revealed. You all do know what Paul went through in his life, did you not? And, and if you don't, you just go read the end of chapter 11 of, of first, uh, sorry, second Corinthians chapter 11, where he lists some of the sufferings that he's been through in his life because of the cause of Christ. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody besides Job. And I'm not even sure Job would compare with the sufferings that Paul went through. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody besides Jesus that has, has suffered like Paul. So Paul it hadn't had an easy life when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So I'm going to ask you a question tonight. How can Paul make that statement? How does Paul know that what's to come isn't even worth measuring with what we're going through now? Well, because he's been there. We'd, we're going to get to that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't know exactly when it happened. We know how many years ago it happened prior to his writing of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But actually, Paul has already been taken to heaven. He's seen what's on the other side. But look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And if I turn to 2 Corinthians instead of 1 Corinthians, it'd be easier. Uh, we're going to get to that. Hang on one second. All right. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, I must go on boasting. By the way, he's just finished listing all the struggles that he's been through in his life. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. 
but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we're not going to jump into the fact that he pleaded three times for God to remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. Let's just deal with what he just said. He says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He was taken up into the third heaven. And then he says it again. He was taken into paradise. By the way, who is the man he's talking about? Himself. It becomes clear in the context. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great revelations, God sent this thorn in my flesh. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I was in heaven. I had a body. I don't know if it was the body that I had on the earth, but I was up there in a body. So I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body. I don't know. But I had a body and I got to see heaven. I got to see paradise. I got to see God's presence. But I'm not allowed to talk about what I saw. Now, let me just chase something for a second. Please hear what I'm saying clearly. I struggle sometimes with people who supposedly have near-death experiences and then write books and make movies about what they saw on the other side because Paul wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw yet. We do know that Isaiah was taken in chapter 6 of Isaiah into the throne room of God, and he was allowed to talk about what he saw there, correct? John was allowed to talk about what he saw when he was taken in Revelation chapter 4 on the Isle of Patmos. He was taken in the spirit up into heaven, and he saw the things that have come in the book of Revelation. So I'm not saying that if anybody says, I saw this and I saw that, that it's wrong and it didn't happen. Yet, Paul wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw. But this much Paul is allowed to say, folks, what is coming is so amazing, you won't even remember what you're going through here. You won't even be able to compare it. A lot of us think, well, I've had a really hard life, but man, it's probably going to be better in the other life. And those people that had it easy, they're not going to have. We're not going to measure that stuff when we get to heaven. And let me have you write down a verse that I want you to look at later on. Because, by the way, I'm going to be flying to Massachusetts in about a week or so. And I'm going to be preaching a whole series on heaven up in Chicopee, Massachusetts. For a church up there for, I don't know, four or five times during 10 days. And one of the nights is going to be a question and answer night. They've already set it aside that there's going to be a night where people come with all their questions about heaven and I'm supposed to answer them. But here's the deal. One of the often asked questions is, well, how can it be heaven if I know that so-and-so is not there? Write down Isaiah 65 and look at verse 17 later on. When we, after the tribulation period and after the millennial kingdom, Enter into the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. Listen to what Jesus says in Isaiah 65, verse 17. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor even come into mind. Folks, we're about to move into a time and a place. By the way, there's time in heaven. People always say, well, no, heaven, there's no time. Yeah, there is. The Bible says the, the tree of life produces its fruit every month. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Makes me wonder how my grandmother on my wife's side actually is going to be there. But I actually got to preach her funeral. 
And I actually told her, when I got up to preach her funeral, she was famous because whatever thought was in her head came out of her mouth. And I literally got up to start speaking in that little church in Arkansas where she had lived her whole life. And I got up and I said, Mildred's death has caused me to question parts of the Bible. Because it says that there's going to be silence in heaven for a half an hour coming up in the future. And I don't know how that's possible with Mildred there. And everybody, of course, laughed because they knew Mildred well. Let me just say this to you. There's going to be time in heaven. It may not be measured the way it is now, but there's going to be time in heaven. There's a lot of things about heaven that I can't wait to tell you, but that's not what we're here for. Listen to what Paul says. He says, the suffering, I know something you don't know. The suffering of this life isn't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Hang on. Hang on. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good, because in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. If that scripture is true, then Paul hasn't even seen all of what is to come. Think about it, folks. It's going to be bigger and better than you'd ever imagine. Have you ever anybody here show a hand know somebody that's got a really, really nice big house? And you thought, man, that's a big, beautiful house. Do you realize if they're a Christian, when they get to heaven, they won't be disappointed? Paul says, I know something you don't know. What we're going through now isn't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Hold on. I've seen it. I'm not allowed to talk about it. But it's going to be way better. But then he says something else. He then says, oh, by the way, creation knows something. That we don't know. Look again at verses 19 through 22. Romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 22. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then he goes on and talks about those of us who have the spirit of groaning as well. We'll get to that a little bit later. But look at what he says. He said creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because creation knows that after the sons of God are going to be revealed, that's when creation is going to be set free from its bondage. Let that sink in for a minute. By the way, according to verse 23, what's going to happen to cause the sons of God to be revealed? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What? The redemption of our bodies. When do we get our new bodies according to the scripture? At the rapture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's talk talks about how we're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of the eye. The mortal is going to put on immortality. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've gone to be with the Lord, those who fall asleep, because God is going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. They're going to come with him, and their body's going to come up out of the ground, and we who are alive at that time are going to be caught up and go be with the Lord. At the rapture is when we get our new bodies. 
Did you catch something here in the timing? Creation won't be released from its bondage until after the rapture. Well, we have to do something now. We've got to go back. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to chase something that I hope will be worth chasing. But you might need to take a couple of notes to track with me here. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Creation knows that they're next after us in God's order of redemption. Go to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 16 and 17. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, Scripture says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right? So God tells Adam, You can eat from any tree you want. This one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. The day you eat of it, you'll die. Go to chapter 3 now, look at verses 1 through 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, beware of people that try to get you into a debate. That's how Satan works. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And of course, he then blames her and she blames the snake and all this stuff. But hang on for a second. Did Adam and Eve die that day that they ate of it? The answer is yes. They didn't die physically, but spiritually they died. Why? They had usually walked with God. They had been in his presence. Actually, I think they lost their Shekinah glory. Another study for another time. And I think when we get to heaven, the Bible even hints at the fact that we're going to have a Shekinah glory. And there's going to be different levels of glory in heaven. That's why Paul talks about how one star differs in one from another in glory. So is it going to be for us? I think one of the reasons why Adam and Eve didn't recognize that they were naked is that they were pure and they, were, they had a Shekinah glow, glory glow about them. They were made in God's image. And when they ate of that tree, they did die spiritually. And they were now separated from God. They lost their glory. And now they hid themselves from him. Let me just tell you, and I'm going to show it to you scripturally, three things happened on that day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree. The first thing is this, man died spiritually. As we've already seen in our study of Romans, that because of Adam's sin, we're all born dead spiritually, correct? It's been passed on to us. And the only way to be made alive again spiritually is through faith in Jesus Christ and him putting a spirit within us. We become born again. A second thing happened. Man began to die 
physically. Go to Genesis chapter 3, look at verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. Man did die in the day that they ate of the tree, like God said. They died spiritually, but also because of it, a curse came on the human body to the point that it wouldn't last forever now, and it is going to decay. But Adam and Eve lived a few more years after this, didn't they? Hundreds. They made lots of kids. On top of that, though, as you've ever noticed, if you study the scriptures, people used to live 900 years you know, old, and over time, the age started getting less and less and less. And there was a period, of course, during the Middle Ages where lifespan was less than it is now. But because of modern medicine, we've increased it a little, but we're still dying, aren't we? We're still dying. And we're, our bodies, even though we've been born again and we've been redeemed spiritually and been made alive, our bodies are still under the curse. We're still under the curse of sin. That's why... Well, I'll get to that in a second. God set up ways for that to be taken care of, too. There's a third thing that happened. Remember, they died spiritually. They began to die physically. And I just read it, but I'm going to read it to you again. Look at verses 17 and 18. The earth, creation, was cursed at that same time. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Look at what he said. Because you've eaten of this tree that I told you not to, you now are dead spiritually. You're going to die physically, and creation is now cursed. I've already talked to some of you how awesome it was that Becky and I got to see Alaska for the first time last week. And as beautiful as it was, it's under a curse. It's under a curse. And let me just say this real quick. Don't get sucked into all these people saying that man has the ability to control the climate. Go read your Bible where God comes to Job and for four chapters, starting in chapter 38 to 42, says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then pretty much says, can you control the weather? The answer is no. But let me just say, as much as things are changing, it's under a curse. And as beautiful as it was, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Again, I want to start talking on my series about heaven, but I'm going to have to save that for another time. But God did something in the Old Testament. He set up three laws of redemption, which would point to how Jesus would redeem all three of these curses in the future. And that's what I want to show you. Remember three things that happened at the time Adam and Eve ate. They died spiritually. They began to die physically. And the earth was cursed. And in the Old Testament, there are actually three laws of redeeming things that are pointing to those three and how Jesus will take care of them. But there's an order. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at verses 5 through 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 25... Look at verses 5 through 10. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And then it goes on and says, if the man doesn't wish to do this, she, you know, the next relative has to do it, but there's going to be this sandal thing and all this stuff. But don't miss this. This is the law of redeeming the bride, the law of levered marriage. Y'all know the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? And how her husband died and they had no children. And so a near relative had to come and take Ruth to be his wife and produce children through her for Elimelech, you know? So I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that God set up a way for the bride to be redeemed. Actually, you see it in the book of Hosea as well. God told Hosea to go marry this prostitute. And she was unfaithful to him and made babies with somebody else. But God told him to go and buy her back, redeem her. Oh, by the way, that's the first thing that happened. Remember Adam and Eve died spiritually? And we're all now born spiritually dead? But what does the Bible say happens when we trust Jesus as our Savior and we're born again? We become the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. He has already begun to redeem the bride. He's going to fully redeem the bride when he redeems Israel. If you do a study of, his, uh, of the nation of Israel, you'll find that God actually calls her. He said, I was her husband. But then he gives her a, a, a certificate of divorce and divorced her. But the Bible says in the very last days, when Jesus comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom, he's going to remarry her. All through the book of Ezekiel, if you remember in our Ezekiel study, he kept calling her a whore because of her unfaithfulness to him. But then in the book of Hosea, he says he's going to call her my virgin Israel. He's going to redeem the bride. But we actually are experiencing that now. Those of us who have trusted Christ, we actually become the bride of Christ. Why? Because when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we are redeemed from that curse of being born dead spiritually. We've been made alive spiritually. That curse is no longer an issue for you or I, is it? No, it's been taken care of by Jesus. Go to John 5. Look at verses 21 through 24. John 5, verses 21 through 24. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's going to be important next week. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So when we trust Jesus as our Savior, through what Jesus did through his sinless life, his death on the cross, his rising from the dead, that first thing that happened, the first curse from Adam and Eve and eating of the tree, we're redeemed spiritually. He set up a picture of it in the redeeming of the bride so she could be bought back and be made the bride again. And that's what we are now, the bride of Christ. But... There's a second thing that happened. Remember, they died spiritually. What happened next? They began to die physically. Go to John chapter 11. Look at verses 25 and 26. 
This will help you understand something that Jesus says that's a little confusing to some people. He's about to raise Lazarus physically from the dead to demonstrate his power over spiritual life and death. And he says to Martha, he says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, he says, whoever believes in me shall, even though he dies, will live. And whoever believes in me will never die. That sounds like gobbledygook, doesn't it? But actually, remember, we're talking about two different types of death again. Whoever lives and believes in Jesus, even though we die physically, we won't die. We're alive spiritually, and we go right into the presence of the Lord. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 1, sitting in the prison at the beginning of that chapter, didn't know if he's going to live or die. And he says, I know that either way it's going to work out for my deliverance. If I stay in the body, that means I get more reward later on. But if I go to be with Christ, that's better by far. He knew he's going to die and go right into the presence of the Lord. We see this with, with uh, um, Stephen as he's being stoned. And as he's being stoned, he saw heaven open. The Son of God's there standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him right into the presence of God. Folks, let me say something to you. If you have been born again spiritually, even though your body is still under the curse and you may die physically, you will not die. Now, one of the saddest things, and, I, and I'm going to say this as clearly and as lovingly as I can, as I travel around the country and speak to churches and Christians all around the country, one of the things that grieves me the most is to talk to older Church members, notice how I didn't say Christians because I don't know everybody's situation, but I talk to a lot of older church members who when they get to that point of death become fearful. And they start saying things like, I hope I've done enough. That's not good. We shouldn't fear our death. We should be looking for it. We should be like Paul that says, hey, if I go on in the body, I'll get more reward later on when I do go. But if today's the day, I get to go be with Jesus. I'm not afraid of dying. But the fact that they're afraid of dying makes me a little concerned for them because they're putting confidence in what have I done? Have I done enough? Folks, let me say something to you. If you're not afraid of dying physically, Satan has nothing on you. He can't do a thing to you. If you're not afraid of dying, you can say to him, give me your worst. It'll be my best. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to go run out in front of a bus. We're going to let the Lord determine when that day is, but we shouldn't fear it. If you, even if you die physically, you won't die. You will go right into the presence of the Lord. Oh, trust me, the homesickness is getting strong. You have to temper it with, but I just, well, do this. Every time you have that, go, <gasps> and say, all right, Lord, I just took a breath. That means I'm still here. And if I'm still here, you have a purpose for me. And we have to balance that. I get upset with that because I don't know what his purpose is for me. He's kicked me back twice now. Well, here, here's, I can tell you this. Don't try to figure out what it is. Just walk with him. And he will use you in the way he wants. We get too caught up into, well, what's God's purpose? What am I supposed to do? And we take over the reins. I say walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will produce fruit. 
So stop worrying about what it is you're here for. Just walk with him, and you'll look back and say, wow. I don't worry about it. I wonder. Well, that's okay. That's good. That's okay. Nothing wrong with wondering, but don't stay there too long. And Acts chapter 13, I think it's verse 36, well, Paul's preaching, he makes this statement. When David had served God's purpose in his generation, he died. That's when Jim Johnson's going to die. When God's done with the purposes he set aside for me in the generation he chose for me to live. I don't know what that is, but until then, I, I'm just going to keep walking with him. But am I homesick? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. We're not going to look at John 14, verses 15 through 20, but you'll notice Jesus had told his disciples, he says, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. The Holy Spirit's going to indwell you. He's going to lead you and guide you and teach you. And in that day, verse 20, you're going to know that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. Folks, if you've been put into Christ, you are alive spiritually. And even though your body's still under the curse and you may die physically, you've, been, you've already been redeemed from the spiritual death. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now, keep in mind, at this point, John has already seen the tribulation period. He's seen the church age. He's seen the tribulation period. He's seen the millennial kingdom. Now he's talking about what happens after the millennial kingdom. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. By the way, if you go on and do a study of this, you'll find that that, that new Jerusalem that's going to come down and, and set place on the new earth that God makes, which is unbelievable and so big and so immense. That, by the way, that city is over 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. You could not fit the foundation of that city anywhere on the continental U.S. without part of it sticking over a border somewhere. It doesn't fit. That's how big it is. That's how amazing the new earth is going to be, that that city will come and not tip it over. But at the same time, if you continue the study, you'll realize that the gates and the, the foundations are made up of the church and Israel. Israel's the bride of Christ, too. He's going to redeem her as well, but we get to experience it now, and we're the bride of Christ. Israel's going to be, get to be a part of the bride of Christ when they turn to Jesus but Jesus' death on the cross has already taken care of that first curse, the dying spiritually. But what about the second curse, this body? Well, go to Leviticus chapter 25. He, he, gave up a, a, he, he set up a law of redeeming of the slave that would point to our bodies. Go to Leviticus 25. Look at verses 47 through 55. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself like a slave to the stranger or sojourner with, who, with you or to a member of a stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he was sold himself to until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. 
The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. I'm going to hint at something that might get two of you, some of you too excited, so, but I'm going to wait on that just a little bit. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here we have a law of redeeming the slave. If a person ends up becoming poor and has to sell themselves as a slave to someone in order to survive, God set it up that a relative could come and redeem the slave, buy them back. Or if after 50 years, on the 50th year, all the slaves are to be set free. The year of Jubilee. All right, I'm going to do this now. And I want to preface this as clear as I can. Jim Johnson is not predicting. No man knows the day or the hour. We're to be watching. We're to be looking. But this year is the year of Jubilee in the Jewish calendar. This year is a year of jubilee in the Jewish calendar. And it's just interesting to me that on the Sunday before Rosh Hashanah in September of this year, I'm going to actually be preaching a homecoming message at a church in Virginia. And I'm going to tell you right now what I'm going to be preaching, unless God changes it. I'm going to be preaching a whole message on our homecoming. And the next week on a Sunday in the year of jubilee is Rosh Hashanah. The only feast you don't know the day of the hour. Again, stop. Don't go any further with that. It's pretty cool. But then again, back with the blood moons and all that other kind of stuff years ago, we thought that was it too. So don't, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with looking and watching and being ready. But don't go beyond and say, okay. I had a lady come up to me when I talked about this last night. And she said, does that mean I don't have to pay my June credit card bill? No, don't go there. We, we may be here another 5, 10, 15, 30 years. I don't know, but we're to be ready and watching. But the Bible does say that in the year of Jubilee, all these things will be made right. Oh, doesn't the Bible say that our bodies are still slaves to sin? Isn't that what it says? Go back with me to Romans 7. Maybe you forgot. Go to Romans chapter 7. Look at verses 21 through 25. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, the part of me that's been made alive spiritually. But I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you see this? Doesn't the Bible say that our bodies are still slaves to sin? 
And we have to, we've already seen in our study, we have to learn how to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And as we walk in the Spirit, we won't, but we're in a war. It's a law that's there. When you want to do right, because in within you and your inner being, you know the law of God, you love the law of God, and you know it's best, but you have this law because it's your body's still under the curse. You're still a slave to sin in your flesh. Go to Romans chapter 8, look again at verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation is waiting. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? Our bodies. Again, when we get in our new bodies, at the rapture. So God set up a law of redeeming the bride. He set up a law of redeeming the slave. And he also set up a law of redeeming the land. Go back to Leviticus chapter 25. Go to Leviticus 25. Look at verses 23 through 28. This is where it's going to get really exciting. So hang on. I know we're almost done. Stick with me. Leviticus 25, 23 through 28. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine, God says. That's Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it, to whom he sold it, and then return his property. If he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until when? Till the year of Jubilee, and the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. All right, hang on for a second. In the garden, at the eating of the tree, from the, they weren't supposed to, they died spiritually. They began to die physically, and the earth was cursed. God set up three laws of redemption in the Old Testament, redeeming of the bride, the redeeming of the slave, and the redeeming of the land. And there's an order in which these things are going to be happening and are happening. When we trust Jesus as our Savior through what he's accomplished at the cross, we are redeemed spiritually. We're born again. We're made alive spiritually. Our bodies are still under the curse. But at the rapture, when we get our new bodies, we will no longer be dealing with these bodies that are under the curse anymore. Our bodies will be redeemed. Did you catch what happens next? Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Because creation knows something we don't know. Well, hopefully you know it now. Creation knows that after the rapture, they're next. Creation is going to be redeemed. But now we've got to go back to this law of redemption here. If a person lost their land, a near relative could come and buy back the land for them. But there's something about this you need to know. And I'm going to show it to you. Go ahead and turn in Jer to Jeremiah chapter uh, 32. If a person lost their land, the terms for redeeming it, Jeremiah 32, we're going to look at verses uh, 6 through 15. The terms for redeeming the land were written on two scrolls. One scroll was left open and hung up on like a community bulletin board somewhere where everybody could see so-and-so lost their land, the near relative, if they can meet these terms, here are the terms. The other one was 
same copy, same kind of an, the same one, but a copy of it was rolled up and sealed. And only the person who had the ability to meet the terms could open the seals. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahesiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in the pre their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So in this time that God's using Jeremiah to bring to the message of judgment, that because of their sin and their disobedience, he's going to be removing them from the land to show them that he's going to bring them back one day. He has his cousin come and say, you're the next near relative to buy this piece of property, could you, I want you to buy it for me. God had already told him it was going to happen. And then when the guy shows up and says it, then I knew he said that was, I heard right and it was the will of God. And so then he does it and he has a sealed copy and an unsealed copy. By the way, we already know that Psalm 24 verse 1 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Y'all know what happened in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? God gave dominion of the earth to who? No, he didn't give it to Satan. He gave it to us. You look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. He gave dominion to mankind. But we subleased it to Satan. And he's now the ruler of this world. And he's setting the terms. Go to Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 4, if you haven't gotten my book yet, there's some back there and I got more in my car if you need them. The book that we've written on the book of Revelation called What Will Happen Next, we mainly deal with chapters 4 through 22, and we've taken the book of Revelation and put it in chronological order. I deal a little bit with chapter 1 to lay a foundation. We really don't cover much in chapters 2 and 3 because it covers messages to the churches during the church age, and I believe we're so close to the end of the church age, we're about to experience what's going to happen in chapters 4 and following. So if you're interested, the books are back there. But let me just say this to you. In chapters 2 and 3, John has been given messages to the churches. And he ends by saying to the last church, which is representative of the last part of the church age, he said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Doesn't the Bible say that when Jesus raptures his church, some will be left behind? But look at what happens in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. After this... After the church age, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had an, the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now look at chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look on into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What is that scroll with the seven seals that are being opened? It's the title deed to the earth. And who's the only one that's able to open the seals? Jesus. Oh, but remember the scroll represents the redeeming of the land. And what happens every time Jesus opens a seal? Something happens on the earth. And it continues. By the way, it's an interesting study. You go look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, especially 5 and 6, and you compare it with Matthew 24, you'll see it's identical. Matthew 24, Jesus is asked by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he says, let me just tell you. He said there's going to be false Christs. Oh, by the way, that's the first seal. The white horse and the Antichrist comes out conquering. They said there's going to be wars and rumors of war. That's the second seal. That's the red horse. And then he said there's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. Next seal. It's pretty cool. Matthew 24 lays out the tribulation period, even the midpoint where when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, Israel, you better run for your life. You better go to the wilderness because it's going to get really, really bad. People have tried to say that, well, the first part of the tribulation period is the wrath of Satan, but the second part is the wrath of God. No, no, no. Jesus is opening every seal. He's the one who's redeeming the land. Oh, do you remember those 24 elders we just talked about? If you haven't, it's laid out in the book, and I want you to grab one. And if, you, if they run out, grab me, and I'll get you some more out of the car. I lay out for you scripturally to show you that back in chapters 2 and 3, God had made promises to the churches. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says, I'm going to give you white robes, and I'm going to give you golden crowns, and you're going to reign with me. Do you remember back in the Old Testament when there were so many priests, they all couldn't serve in the temple at the same time? God had David break them down into divisions. Anybody want to take a while and guess how many divisions? 24 divisions. That's why when it was Abijah's turn and his family's division to serve, that's when he went in. Sorry, not, not Abijah. Uh, Zechariah's turn because he was on the priestly line of Abijah. When it was his turn, he went in, and that's when the angel Gabriel tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son named John the Baptist. But it's, there were 24 divisions that represented all the priests, but they took turns. Actually, if you go on in the Old Testament and Chronicles, you'll see that actually not only was there 24 divisions of priests, there were 24 divisions of musicians and the, and the singers. Everybody wanted to sing a solo, but they couldn't do it, so they had to break them into groups. Yes, sir? The church of Laodicea, I'm going to spit you up because you're lukewarm. Is that redeemed by one of the 24? Is, the, is, is that church redeemed like you're... Well, actually, he's speaking to the church as... He's, to, he's talking to, he has a message for them, but it was also for all of the churches. If you notice, he had a message for that local church and hear what the Spirit says to the church is. So not only was that message to them, it was a message to all the churches. And you'll see a pattern there, and it's a progression of the church age. He redeemed them all anyway. Well, not the ones that weren't his. He only redeems those who put their faith in him. And that's why in the church in Laodicea, he says, you guys are, some of you are hot, some of you are cold, a lot of you are lukewarm. 
I wish you were hot or you're cold, because if you're hot, you're mine and you're for me. If you're cold, you at least know where you are. But the fact that you're lukewarm and you're playing the game and you're wishy-washy, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. When he raptures the church, those who aren't his will be left behind. Now listen to this, though. Who are the 24 elders representative of then? The church. Oh, by the way, if you go back and look in Isaiah and Ezekiel's visions of the throne of God, there were no 24 elders. They described the seraphim. They described the throne. They described the wheels upon the, the fire under the throne. They described the rainbow, all the stuff that John saw. But John saw something at this point that wasn't there back in Isaiah's time and Ezekiel's time. Around the throne were 24 thrones, which I really believe is representative of the church. The church is already in heaven when Jesus begins to open the deeds, the sealed deed copy of the earth. Isn't that awesome? Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because creation knows that after the rapture, they're going to be redeemed next. There's an order. We can be made alive spiritually right now, redeemed and made alive spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ and will become the bride of Christ. Our bodies are still under a curse and slaves to sin, and we have to learn to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh while we're in these bodies. But one day we won't be in these bodies anymore, and I can't wait for that day. And that's at the rapture when we get our new bodies. And by the way, if you die before that, you'll still get your new body at the rapture. Remember, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. They're going to get their new bodies when we get our new bodies, if we're alive at that time. But then after that, during the tribulation period, Jesus begins to get the earth back. And by the end, he comes and sets up his kingdom and he's in control. And what happens to the earth? The earth all of a sudden is fully redeemed. The little trickle of a, of a stream starts flowing from the temple down toward the, the Dead Sea. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and then turns the Dead Sea fresh. And lions are able to lay with a lamb. Kids can play in a cobra hole. People live a long time again. It's going to be an amazing time. It's going to be awesome. Oh, but by the way, that's still not the new heaven and the new earth that Paul can't talk about yet. It's going to be amazing. But folks... Let me encourage you with this. Paul says, I know something you don't know. What we're going through now isn't even worth comparing to be what's revealed. Hold on. Don't lose your reward because you gave up. It's tempting right now. A lot of people are committing suicide. Stop it. Hang on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let us not grow weary. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame. We should have that same attitude that says, Lord, I'm ready to go. I groan inwardly. I want to be with you. But until then, I'm going to just walk with you, and you're going to get me through it. But I love the fact that if I die physically, I go by, right be with you. But one day I'm going to get a new body, and I don't have to fight this curse of sin anymore. And one day we're going to be glorified, and the earth will be as well. Now, there's a third part we didn't get to tonight, but that's what we're going to pick up next week. Remember, I told you there's three parts. Paul says, I know something you don't know. The earth knows something you don't know. And then I'm going to show you next week how the Holy Spirit knows things we don't know. The famous passage of how the Holy Spirit helps us with the groanings unutterable for words. I'm going to show you how you've had it only halfway taught you correctly. We've been taught that in those times when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us. I'm going to show you that, yes, he does help you in those times, but I'm going to show you scripturally that he's already been praying for you before you even knew it because he already knows what God's purposes are for why he's having you go through what you're going through. So you don't have to ask him to help you. He's already been way ahead of you praying for you that his purposes will be aligned. 
But that's next week. We'll see you then. Love you. Thanks for coming.